This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Matt Robeson, and we've got something a little different for you here. Many of you are hearing this show among our thousands of listeners on WKXL. Many of you are hearing this on our Beyond Politics podcast, which, by the way, is available wherever you get your podcasts. And many of you are watching us on video, maybe on YouTube or Facebook, or maybe on one of the biggest and fastest growing news and information sites out there, Politicus USA. The editor of that outstanding site is Sarah Jones, and Sarah's here with me. We have different backgrounds. Sarah has a background in film and TV. Eventually, she launched the Politicus USA site. While I was a longtime congressional staffer, campaign manager before becoming a writer and podcast host. But we both are really fascinated by the same question. How did we get to this pretty awful place in American politics and society? And how do we get out of it? It all falls under the heading of finding our way back from Trump's America. In recent months, we've been exploring that question in a bunch of ways. I've been doing a show called Great Ideas, which by the way, is available in the Great Ideas podcast feed. And I hope you'll check that out. And in the show, I interview different experts and get their ideas for how to make things a little better. We've heard some really smart ideas from across the whole ideological spectrum, left to right, on how to get people more healthcare coverage or run the government more effectively, cut carbon, create jobs, take care of seniors, the whole gamut. Sarah's been running excerpts of those shows on Politicus USA. They've been getting a lot of shares, and that's great because that's the point, trying to get people to think a little bit more about ideas from more perspectives. We've also been doing chats like the one we're going to do today about the bigger question of how we got here and how we get out. I've been doing a lot of thinking about that in the last few months while talking to literally dozens and dozens of experts on beyond politics and great ideas. And Sarah's been doing a lot of thinking about that as well, as she edited hundreds of articles on Politicus USA. And we wanted to get together and talk about what we've learned. So Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I know this is gonna be a really great discussion. And I think it's wonderful just to acknowledge that we couldn't have talks like this under Trump. There was so much chaos and now we can, and it's important to do because people are really, you know, a lot of people that I hear from are feeling they're recovering from Trump. They're still in recovery mode and it's a normal place to be right now. And I wanna talk a little bit about what he did to our country and to everyone in the country as we talk about this whole broader picture. How can we get out of Trump's America and make sure that it doesn't happen again? Absolutely, I, I think you're right. That's what I hear on my show is people really are, they're exhausted and, they are hungry for something else. In part, they're hungry for a break. They just want to not be kind of caught up in the maelstrom of Trump and, and where our politics is. But to some degree, they want to see a glimmer of light down the road that we're on our way to something better. So before we kind of get to what does that road look like for how we get yeah. to something better, we're talking about how we landed here. Let's talk about what we mean by here. I mean, my sense is that the insurgency, the, the January 6th violent attack 
on the Capitol that was intended to overthrow the results of the election, overthrow our US government sort of sums it all up, but underneath that, there's an awful lot more. So what's your diagnosis for what here means, for where we are, what our problems are? I think that it's threefold, and it may be more than this, but just just right now where I've kind of landed is that there's a psychological component, and I don't think we can deny that after the experience of Donald Trump, who clearly never should have been in office. There's a socioeconomic part of all of this that's playing into, and and especially for Trump's followers, but for everyone, we're all suffering economically. Most of us are. I mean, I know there's many people who aren't, but most of us are not doing, are not comfortable. We don't have the things that people need in order to feel safe and feel secure. And then politically. So I know you've addressed a lot of the political things, fixes that I want to get into because a lot of these were, that I've heard on your podcast have been really interesting and not what I was expecting at times at all. And so I like the way that you're getting outside of the box and talking to people from, from all walks of life and from both both sides, if you will. I always want to preface that with saying I, one of the things that I feel really strongly about as somebody who studied psychology, and I, I'm applying kind of, if you look at a dysfunctional family, and if you apply that to what's happening to the country right now, and that that is where we are at, we're very divided, we have two different sets of reality going on, and they're always at war with one another. One is real, and one isn't. And so we can't say both sides are doing X and we need to meet Republicans at their imagined delusional reality. Now, I don't mean all Republicans. I'm not talking about the voters. I'm talking about the elected officials who voted to overturn the election. And we'll just call them the Trump force for now. But those, but of course, that the, the problem that led to Trump is so much bigger than Trump. And they're primed for another go at this. You know, their next presidential election, they're not weeding out the crazy. They're not getting rid of the extremists. They're, they've, they've elevated them to such a level that they're now still, you know, kissing Trump's boots. It's just, it's a still going on where they, they don't have the courage. They don't have the personal responsibility. They don't have the patriotism required to fix this country. And so I'm not interested in meeting those people anywhere. And I think they should be shut out of civilized society. And I think they should be not in office, but it isn't up to me, unfortunately. Well, so first that of all, an option. <laughs> well, I, I did not think that the end of your sentence about what people were kissing when it comes to Trump was going to be boots. So it wasn't. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for surprising me with that one. Yeah. But I do, I do agree with you that there's sort of two levels thinking about this in my mind. On the one hand, there's sort of top line numbers that we've probably all heard in some form of media or some form of political discussion. We know that trust in government is way down. It's below 20% according to Pew polling. That's down 30% over the last 50 years. We know that trust in institutions overall is way down. You can look across just about every institution in American society. The military is, is probably the one that's, that's least down, but corporations and, and news media. And by the way, when it comes to news media, there's a massive decline there. Over yeah. 65 million Americans live in counties with only one local newspaper or none at all. And over the last 15 years, 
about 20% of American newspapers have shut down. That means we have what I think is sort of the deeper, the second issue, which is a loss of shared facts, a loss of shared narrative. We don't have a basis to even have a conversation. People have probably seen some of the polling that's been done on how much hatred there is in our politics right now. People's assessments on a scale of zero to 100, where 100 is red scorching hot warmth and zero is frigid cold, people's assessments of their own party have remained pretty stable over the last 40 years. They hover around between 70 and 80 on that 100 point scale. They have nosedived in terms of their assessment of the other party. They've gone from around 50, you know, lukewarm to 20, you know, really ice cold territory. So you have these two factors coming together. You have hatred, distrust overall, and no source of a common shared narrative. Let's have one set of facts we can agree on. Let's have a common understanding of what we're even talking about. So as you say, I do think that there is a segment of the population that is kind of in between, floating in between the extremes of the parties where you can still have, in theory, that conversation. But there are people who are lost, who are way off the edges on both sides. Yeah, I mean, it is worse on the Republican side. And and a lot of that came, well, I mean, there's their there's their media problem and there's been studies that show that people who consume conservative media do not go and consume mainstream media after that but people who consume liberal media do go and consume mainstream media after that or before it so there isn't you know it's it's an asymmetrical extremism that's not to say that it couldn't happen to democrats it certainly has happened in the past but right now that's not where we're at and i think that one of the things that I insist upon saying all the time, because I think when we soften the blow in order to make people feel better, hoping they'll come to the table and hear us, we're being dishonest and we're not going to fix anything when we don't, when we have the dead horse under the rug in the living room and we're all sitting around the living room having a discussion, like that dead horse isn't there. And that's what our media does right now uh, way too often, I think, and and I'm not blaming them for the entire problem. I I think one of your I want to get to one of your podcasts about how we got here and kind of tracing back to the Heritage Foundation and and how that extremism really took off in 2010, which you know I think is assert a reaction to the first black president. I don't buy the entire thing that what is happening is people of low socioeconomic. Um, status, that that's what racism is comes from. I, I actually, in my studies, have learned that racism is a tool that the elites use to divide people. It's been that way throughout history. And so the people who are prone to falling for that, yes, they may, they have a variety of stressors in their life and a need to feel superior. And that can come from a variety of different problems and challenges like can be financial, but it isn't just that. And so I live in Trump land and many people here who still support him and still think that he won the election are wealthy people. So how do we get to the, to these people? They're only consuming stuff that they get off of Facebook. That's every time I talk to somebody, you know, they want to quote some, and, and every, and I have to tell them every time that is satire. A lot, a lot of times it's satire that's presented 
to the right as real news. And they somehow get away with that by calling it satire, but it's always negative about Democrats. So most of the people that I run into here believe that stuff. I don't know, you know, that that's, that that's reachable. That's again, where we come into these separate facts. So you don't find that so much with liberals and, and progressives. And the, one of the problems that progressives have, I think, I, although the, we certainly have an extreme wing of the Democratic Party, but they're not in power. Although I would like to point out one of the really interesting things, and I want to get to your podcast because I'm, you know, we could talk about this forever. But one of the really interesting things about President Biden is what he's doing financially with the $1.9 trillion COVID package and now the next spending bills that he, his budget that he has presented, he is going big. And part of the reason why he's doing that is to address these, this whole culture of inequity that we have had, we've all been operating under for so long that does allow a large segment of the population to be co-opted by lies and to be really open to someone like Donald Trump who 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 shared psychosis. I mean what what he did is he shared his psychosis as a leader with the entire country. So you have people who bought into his delusions, his supporters, and then you have the people who were only stuck reacting to it. And when you basically all lived with someone with a narcissistic, you know, personality disorder who had reached the level of, of psychosis, who was also and still is criminally minded. So you put all that together. It's not about people having a mental illness. Mental illness doesn't make somebody violent, doesn't make them dangerous. It doesn't make them a criminal. Donald Trump has always been criminally minded and he put all of that together and then just used our country to feed his endless need. So, you know, you bring up two things that I'd love to pick up on. One is, you're right, one of the geniuses of President Biden's initial stint in office, if there's sort of a politics of Biden that's emerged in the beginning of his administration, it's been the wisdom of speak softly and carry a stick. And in many cases, that stick is a progressive policy stick. The fact that the American Rescue Plan included provisions to lift 13 million American children out of poverty. It's estimated to cut child poverty in half in America. Let that sink in. Children who are in poverty, and by the way, the poverty line, I don't know if people have, have lived with or experienced what the poverty line, it is shockingly low. If you're in poverty, you are poor. And so the idea of lifting that many American children out of poverty is really profound. And he doesn't have to go on the road a la Trump or even a la Obama and right. tout it. He doesn't have to yell about it. He doesn't have to convince people how great it is. And one of the fallacies, one of the mistakes that progressives sometimes make is they feel like they have to win the argument. It's not enough to just enact the policy. Well, he's enacting the policy, he's doing it quietly, and he's making a real impact. But I wanna go back before we, before we talk about this, this thread of how we got to this toxic place in politics. I do want to pick up on something you were saying. You were characterizing it through the metaphor of a dead horse. I love this. I love this visual image. A dead horse in the room, stinking up the joint underneath the rug. None of us are talking about that. I want to talk about the role of violence in American society and the growing acceptance of violence as a political means 
in our culture. The, as you say, a lot of what's presented in right-wing media, but I'm not going to absolve left-wing media either here, oh, is no. yeah. an acceptance of violence. Look, on the right, there were plenty of memes going around last summer of peaceful Black Lives Matter protests, you know, reports on the scene. And in the background, there are things on fire. I think that people on the right have a legitimate point there. Where they tend to lose the thread a little bit is in apologizing for a violent armed insurrection against the American government that occurred a matter of months ago. So there is something new going on here. Yeah. What's, and, what's your take on this? What, how much does that factor into how toxic our politics have become? Well, I mean, what we are doing right now, my whole thing is that without accountability, nothing will change. And so we don't have accountability right now. People are looking at what happened on January 6th. They see people, some people being arrested, but just yesterday, the FBI you know, shut down this investigation that they were doing, that the DOJ had ordered, um, saying it, it violates civil liberties and people have a right to protest. So let's, let's break down the difference between domestic terrorism and calling for an assault on an election and protesting because the color of your skin makes you prone to being shot by the law for no reason. Those are two very different reasons to protest. One is legitimate. The other, I'm sorry, is not. I understand their point about Trump's rally. They're saying they can't, you know, it's fine to go to a rally. Okay, that rally did lead to uh, domestic terrorism. It did call for it at several times and, and he had um, been leading up to that for a long time and it's called for violence against any number of people. So that's not a new thing. He's been doing that since he's been in the public eye, which is a great reason why he's been shut off of so many social medias. Good for those tech companies. I know they didn't do it for the right reasons, but they did it and it's important because we have to cut off that call for violence that he does so well. Is that the same as the left? The left is the left. Are, are all people protesting Black Lives Matter, for example, on the left? I don't think so, but if we wanna say that's owned, I, yeah, there's been violence at some of those. Sometimes it's perpetrated by the protesters themselves. It often is not, but let's just say that it is just, just to see if the comparison bears out, you know? We should never turn away from those facts and say it didn't happen. Those things happen, it matters. That's what news is. This happened, we're documenting it, it matters. But I am saying that the, the reason, what are people to do when the very justice system that they need to be heard from is killing them in the streets and then the officers are not held accountable? There's no justice. Of course, people are going to eventually become violent. That's why we need to work together to fix the problem in our police, in our policing and in our justice system from top to bottom for people of color. So I think to, to myself, because one of the things that Donald Trump is and, and psychologically is a bully and bullies enjoy inflicting pain on people. And that's what we're seeing. That's what happened on January 6th, there is, there's still a lot of pleasure being taken from the fear they've inspired in people. And that is a very dangerous thing to let go. That is not to me the same thing as what is happening when people are protesting a grave, grave injustice that is real. 
So I don't like violence coming from anyone. And I'm not here to misrepresent that, those facts and I never will. But I also think it's really important that we're supposed to be, at least in my, you know, my position, speaking for the voiceless. I consider people who are being uh, targeted by their own police uh, forces to be people who are voiceless. They have a right to protest, absolutely. So do people on the right, even when their protests are based in lies. They have a, still have a right to protest. They don't have a right to plot violence against other people, and they don't have a right to try to overthrow an election. So that's the issue. Where are we going to draw the line? And the, my fear, my concern is that we as a country, we were so afraid of Donald Trump. You know, he shut down discussion. He shut down psychologists who were trying to call out that he really shouldn't be in power, that he needed to, to be evaluated by someone. And they could profile him the way forensic psychologists do and the way uh, criminal psychologists can do but it wasn't allowed. Dr. Bandy Lee, who, who started to do that, she, got, she lost her job at Yale. We just went around silencing anyone who said anything that made Trump unhappy. Right, that said that the emperor is insane. Exactly. And so when you have a country that's doing that, my concern is how do we get better? It's great that people are talking now and all of a sudden now protest is okay now that there's a Democrat in office. And I'm all for that. Protest Biden all you want, because that's what this government is all about. You should have your say. But why are we so prone? We did it under Bush, too. People just collapse. They, they, they get that sort of authoritarian father figure. And that's the psychology behind what Trump was. He, he was the, you know, abusive father figure that attracted people. I mean, it sounds like what we're sort of collectively saying is there are some deep, long-standing, progressing issues. They're yeah. metastasizing in our culture and in our politics. Trump was sort of, now I'm gonna switch metaphors here from a medical to a, a biochemical, but Trump was the accelerant. He was the gasoline on a fire that was, right. that was already going. And so we've reached a point where we talked about some of the statistics before. We've lost all our trust in each other. We, we have anger and hatred at one another. We don't have a common basis for discussion among vast swaths of the population. And then you've got this aspect of violence where you have a certain set of grievances in society that are legitimate, but the political system won't work to redress them. And on the other hand, you have a set of grievances in society that are completely trumped up. Yes, that's an intentional pun and that lead to completely illegitimate violence. So it is, it, is a, it is a real bad place that we've landed in. Let's touch on this question that we teased a little bit before. How did we get here? So you go first. How did we get here, Sarah Jones? Well, don't blame me. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just started writing. I'm not like looking up at a map. Happened. It's no. like, how did we get here? No, I know. I mean, it's, but it's, I found I really found your podcast about this, about the Heritage Foundation and, and how that think tank really kind of moved thought. It moved the elites and then the elites moved the voters. And I found that so fascinating because of course it's the opposite of the way that Republicans present themselves. I mean, if they call liberals elites one more time when 
you know, at the same time, they're saying liberals are in the streets being violent because they're being shot at by the police. I, I'm confused about what an elite is. Looks to me like an elite is somebody with a lot of money, the billionaire class who can use think tanks to convince their voters to vote for things that aren't good for them, which I found from, you know, learned a, a little bit about, a lot about from your podcast. And the fact that I think it was, was it EJ? EJ Fagan, yeah. Yes. So he was saying that this didn't start. I'll let you talk because you did the podcast. But the, the fact that the polarization didn't really start until 2010, I found really fascinating. So yeah, tell I me mean, a little bit about that. I mean, that whole, the, because people equate left-wing think tanks with the Heritage Foundation. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, you know, we started out by trying to tackle this question of, how we ended up here. And, you know, if, again, if we define here as we're, we're living in, in different mental universes, there are, there are two Americas in, in terms of where we are politically and culturally and the media we interact with and, and the people we interact with. So we started to break it down and we didn't do all of this in the podcast episode, but I started thinking along the lines of, well, what are the causes? And I, I put them into three buckets, ultimately. I think that over the last 40 years, there are things that have happened that are unavoidable. There are things that were unintentional. And then there were things that were intentional. So the unavoidable stuff, you may have heard about, read about in other places. Starting in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, there were political changes, and demographic changes that led to the parties realigning into a very distinct left versus right. It used to be that your ideology wasn't a very good predictor of which party you were in. There were liberal Republicans. There were a lot of conservative Democrats totally changed starting in the mid 1960s. The other thing that happened was as that, as that effect started to play out, the amount of swing vote in our country dropped. It used to be about a quarter. Voters were real swing voters. They could be persuaded either way. Now estimates are that it's down to six to 9%. So what did that do? It led to campaigns adopting a dominant strategy of mobilizing your side. It was better bang for the buck to spend your campaign dollars on turning out your side than persuading people in the middle. So those were sort of unavoidable things that happened because of changes in our society. Then there were things that happened that had unintended consequences. For example, the rise of social media and the way social media algorithms intermediate the way we interact with each other. The, the developer of the uh, retweet button on Twitter, Chris Wetherill, gave an interview several years back where he said that it was a huge mistake to allow people to retweet content. He said it was like handing a four-year-old a loaded weapon. And We've seen a lot of unintended effects like that in terms of our laws on who can donate money to campaigns, social media, the way we communicate, and the psychology of what we use that was sort of inaugurated in 1994 by Newt Gingrich, this kind of maximalist scorched earth version of politics that was very scary effective, but had all of these waterfall effects. So that's category one, category two, before we even get to the podcast I did, which was about the very intentional engineered effort to create a whole different mental reality for conservatives. But before we get to that, you were going to say something. 
Oh, I was just by by all means jump in. No, I oh I will, but I was just I was tying this in with uh, something else that you talked about in a different podcast about the extremism of both of the parties in in elected officials and how they are so incentivized now, which goes back to what you were just saying. They're incentivized to be extreme, and they don't want to come home to their voters and say, you know, I worked with the other party on something because it, that to their voters will be too unbearable. Um, right. And actually, that's interesting because that's one of, I think, the unintended consequences that we've seen over, this one's a little bit more like over the last 20 years, I think campaigns have fallen into a data trap. What's happened is, as they've been able to track the effect online of their campaign communications, most of that tracking has happened in the fundraising realm or what works in fundraising. It's feeding red meat to your base. It's being as inflammatory as possible. And so you get a ton more feedback, a ton more data on that type of messaging than you do for persuasion messaging, what you put on TV, what you put in mail, all other forms of communication. And so what does that do? It creates a feedback loop that gives you this illusion that, hey, you know what works? What works is the communication that we feed to our base for fundraising purposes, where we call the other side the devil, and lo and behold, that becomes the dominant form of communication in right. our campaigns. And that and that, it, that is something both sides do. So like when we are talking about extremism, I am talking about both sides right now. I'm not going to hold the left accountable for becoming little mini Trumps because they haven't reached, they're not, they're not there. And I don't think they're primed to do that right now. But it's just important to say that, you know, I get those um, emails, I get them from Republicans, I get them from Democrats, and it became so annoying, this constant, the world's on fire, you know, especially because I felt like I'm already so stressed out. Right. I, I really don't need you to tell me that the climate change is, you know, that's it, we're done, we're toast, there's no hope, have a great day, give us $500, because, you know, maybe there's a chance, but probably we're all going to die. I mean, this is just not what my system needs right now as I'm trying to repair it from constantly reacting to Donald Trump. Well, I'll link it back. Well, as you were saying, I'll link it back to two podcast episodes, you know, on the, on the question of kind of what piece of how we landed here was intentional. I, I, I definitely recommend this episode. You can find it on our website. It's beyondpoliticspodcast.com, or you can find the excerpt and the link to the whole, to the whole listen on the Politicus USA site. But we, we did do this interview with this professor, EJ Fagan, who's traced back this history of the creation of the Heritage Foundation, a right-wing think tank that was, the genesis of it was this, feeling on the right that the answers, the basic reality that they were getting to questions about the world from longstanding sources of fact and information, universities, media, they just didn't like those answers. They, they, it's, it's what Stephen Colbert said, reality has a well-known liberal right. bias. So <laughs> yeah. they set out to change it and right. they created an intentional ideas ecosystem that was skewed to the right and where the answers came back intentionally to justify conservative right-wing policies. Lo and behold, what happened over the next 40 years? That moved the elites, that moved the elected leaders. And then starting around 2010, we began to see this waterfall effect where it began to move the base 
of the Republican Party. But let me give the other side of the coin real quick, which is you were alluding to the fact that we're all exhausted by the messaging that says the sky is falling, literally in the case of the climate. And yeah. one of the reasons why I created the Great Ideas podcast, you and I talked about it on a podcast episode a few months ago, and you've been running these excerpts on the Politicus USA site. One of the reasons I did it was to give people a more positive view, uh, right. a little bit, a little bit more hope. And we've actually done a couple of really interesting episodes where experts take us through here's the situation we're actually in, aside from the hysteria, and here's why the path forward is actually not as scary as you think. So if you're looking for a bit of a balm for yeah. that kind of constant yeah. coming that's so negative, that's one of the things that we're trying to do. That's what I really like about what you're doing and that it's it gives people something to think about, a way forward that is positive, and it's based on ideas. It's not this kind of knee-jerk reaction stuff that's, you know, we're still going through that right now. It's going to be a long time before we can get our equilibrium back after what happened. I mean, and I don't know that we should get it back, given that we don't, there are other attacks being planned on the country, and we don't really seem to have good stop gaps in place right now to keep that from happening. So I think it's really important to focus, and that's why I came to you and said, you know, I would really like it if you publish these uh, on our website. And I think the other part of the other podcast that I think you're alluding to, because you and I talked about it before, is the one about what Joe Biden can get done, how the Senate works, and given this extremism, what's likely to happen, which I think can go into what can we do about this. I don't, but before we even say, what can we do about this? Because I feel like there isn't a lot that people, readers, you know, listeners can do to change all of that that's happening with our leaders. I mean, unless we, the gerrymandering and all of that is going to address some things when we fix some of that, obviously. But I do want to put a plug in for everyone. One thing you can do today is to get involved in your local government. And you would be surprised if, if you are not already involved in it, the level of corruption that could be happening in your little town. I speak from personal experience. I am currently spending a lot of my time embattled with a local township government that likes to do things in the dark and mislead people about where they're going. So that's where our leaders are created. Those people that are getting away with that stuff right now in your city, your town, are going to possibly run for bigger office and then they're just going to keep going. Now, if you're a Republican, apparently you just need to have a TV show or now even Democrats. I think we have, Democrats have a few people. So, but let's pretend that, that experience matters because it is part of the pipeline for how we get leaders basically. So get involved in your local government and make them know that you are paying attention to what they're doing. Go to the meetings, email them, all of that. I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And you know, it's interesting in my professional career, I worked as a staffer in Congress. I worked as a staffer in a state legislature and I've been involved in my own local town politics. I got to say you get much more vitriol on the local level. Oh um, the yeah. issues, the issues are really, really super fraught, and it's it's where you can make a really big impact. You know, and I think you're taking us to a good 
place in the conversation, which is starting to think a little bit about how we fix all this. We are not going to solve this in, in any one show. And I think that this is a discussion that we can and should and will continue as part of this, this series, this conversation. But you, you nominated the idea of, here's something tangible people can do. They can get involved in local politics. I'd like to nominate something, which is, I think people can adjust their own media diet. You can't impose... Uh, something on the overall media ecosystem on your own. But I was alluding earlier to the fact that there has been this slow die-off of local media. And there's also been a lot of pressure on good, reliable sources of information. And sure, I I mean, by all means, support the New York Times, support even the, the Wall Street Journal, if that's your cup of tea, by all means. But also, you're on the Politicus website right now, or you're listening to WKXL, or you're, you've subscribed to Beyond Politics or Great Ideas. I think one of the things that you and I shared, one of the reasons we wanted to collaborate in this conversation and in, in the other work we're doing together, is that we really do both believe in the value of putting forward thoughtful content, non-hysterical content, non-inflammatory, clickbait, headline-y kind of content that engages in thoughtful conversations with people who really know what they're talking about and can at least provoke some some thought, some reaction, some, some thinking within our listeners and our readers. You may not agree with everything that gets presented, but if we're going to start to have a conversation with the other half of the country, we can at least start to have some intellectual honesty with ourselves. We can engage with some new ideas and we can try and sharpen our own thinking. So that's a plug for content that people are already engaging with, but you're doing a good thing. And I think more people could try to make that effort to engage with thoughtful, high quality content, whether through sites like Politicus USA or the kind of audio content that I'm providing through the podcast. I completely agree with that. I mean, not not just because it's self-serving. I've been a hand raised here. That was a a little bit of a plug. No, I'm not. But I'm not accusing you of that because I think the point you're making is so important and it's not something that I say very easily. But, you know, one of the things that is behind what we do, that it's one of our rules is that, okay, here's what happened. And then here's the truth about it, here's something you didn't know about it, here's some here's some context for it, but it's presented in a way that is easy to digest for people who have actual jobs and can't spend or don't want to spend their whole life, you know, attached to the television or reading papers. And I do think that we don't aim what we're writing at the elites, we're writing for the people. That's always what we've been doing. And I I feel like every time I've listened to your podcast and every time I'm talking to you, that that's the same goal that you have is just engaging people. The more people that are engaged in government, the better chance we have of having a decent government that isn't corrupt and that serves the people. Right now, we just got so lucky with so many people getting engaged and we have what a person who I think is doing an incredible job as president, certainly not something I uh, foresaw him doing, being quite so FDR-ish and bold with a lot of those, you know, proposals that he's making. I, I'm really 
we got him though. We got this because people were mobilized. They were engaged. We just got to have to keep them engaged. So. Absolutely. And it's, you know, look, as we're talking so much about being hopeful and constructive, I don't want to take us to a dark place by reminding people that we're only here by the skin of our teeth. We're here by 42,000 votes in a few key states. And we're still in a situation where the voters representing 18% of the population can pick 52 senators, an absolute majority of the US Senate. So there are problems. And I don't think you or I in any of what we produce are trying to pretend that we don't have deep, fundamental, scary problems. But one of the things that I, that has so impressed me with working with you on the Politicus site is, you know, we create these, these excerpts, these, con- these condensed edited versions of these great ideas shows. And in the process of doing that, I've been learning from you how you go about doing your work on Politicus USA. One of the things you told me kind of behind the scenes is don't try and clickbait up your title. Don't, don't go for the easy clicks because it's, it's a sugar high. <laughs> it's not worth it. And ultimately what you're trying to do and what I'm trying to do, I think, what unites the content we're trying to create is we find ourselves in the position of trying to be a good restaurant next to a McDonald's. That's no diss on McDonald's. I, yeah. I, I love me some McNuggets as much as the next yeah. guy, but yeah. no one would pretend that it's healthy for you, right? right. No one would Their pretend that you, you should live thing. Right. You don't right. want to supersize yourself. No. So like we're in this position of trying to create a different alternative right. of, of yeah. something that's a little bit more healthful. And in the long run, if you take a long view and you provide that material, I do agree with you that it will, it will find an audience. And yes, that is meaningful for our politics. People yeah. changing their political communications content right. diet is actually really important for democracy. You're, you're absolutely right. I hope that the tech giants that have, you know, especially Facebook, that really controlled what, and they're still doing it now, what content people are getting. I think the top 10 trending articles are nine of them come from far, far right conspiracy oriented places. That, that's just a one week snapshot or one month snapshot, but, but it's consistently, you know, eight to 10, eight to 10 of the top 10 are from these far right. And then there'll be like Barack Obama and one other Democrat uh, or liberal politician who's made, managed to get some headway over there in Facebook land where they don't allow (laughs) a certain kind of thought. When, and I, you know, I just want to say that because it's important to where people are getting their information. And, and part of the problem we have, I think you already touched on this, but is the way that, that social media has, their algorithm has chosen what content you're going to get. And it may not be actually what you're looking for, especially if you're on Facebook and you have- Absolutely, absolutely. Any, any thoughts? Well, I, look, I already think people have made good choices. This is self-congratulatory. I'm going to like wrench a shoulder here, patting ourselves on the back. But I do think people have made good choices by watching this video and listening to this content. If, if you're catching us on WKXL or on the Beyond Politics podcast, or if you're on the Politicus USA site, and if you've just heard one of those incredible outlets that we participate in, 
and you haven't checked out one of the other ones, please do so. Please subscribe to Beyond Politics. Please check out Politicus USA. Sarah Jones, we'll continue this conversation sometime real soon. Thank you so much.